Hey, Crack fans. Before we get to today's show, I want to let all of you listeners know about the revolutionary work being done by our friends over at Swing Vision. Now, all of us as tennis players are constantly searching for that piece of information that's going to give us that one, two, three percent edge whenever we step onto the court. We want to know, am I hitting my forehand with enough depth? Am I accurately placing my backhands? Am I employing patterns on the court that are putting me in an optimum position to experience success? Thankfully, all of those questions can now be answered via the app produced by our friends at Swing Vision. Folks, it's extraordinarily simple. You're going to download the app. You're going to turn that app on your phone. You're going to put your phone on the back fence, the back curtain of whatever court you're playing on. You're going to hit record. And then using artificial intelligence, Swing Vision is going to break down your performance. If you click on the link that you find in the podcast description here on today's episode, you'll go right to the Swing Vision website. And of of course, friends who use our Crack Rackets promo code CRACK20 are going to get an additional $20 discount and a free 14-day pro trial on the Swing Vision app. Again, you use that promo code CRACK20, $20 discount, as well as a free 14-day pro trial. How do you find the link? To get signed up, just go back to your podcast feed. It's in the podcast description of this episode. You go to the Swing Vision website, you set up your account, you download the app, you get rocking and rolling, get all the information one location with our friends at Swing Vision. Welcome to the mini break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, July 11th, the year's third Grand Slam officially in the books. What a Wimbledon it was here in 2022. We know our singles champions. Ultimately, it was Novak Djokovic dropping the first set for the third consecutive match, nevertheless finding himself in the winner's circle. Once again, Djokovic, a four-set victory over Nick Curious that, in my opinion, kept all of us tennis fans entertained from start to finish. Of course, on the women's side, another exciting three-set battle. This time, it was a first-time Grand Slam champion, Elena Rabakina. That power tennis that we talk about so frequently here on this podcast, ultimately paying dividends for the 23-year-old. She earns a come-from-behind three-set victory that, if you watched, you know she was in control of really from the start of that second set. Set onwards, and obviously, it was a big day for Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club as we are ready to officially induct Elena Rabakina full time membership moving forward. Of course, on today's podcast, what we plan to do is not only break down the two Wimbledon singles finals, but of course, turn our eyes now towards the North American hardcourt summer. And of course, there are already events beginning this week on the ATP and WTA Tour. We'll focus on those events to Tomorrow, But what we want to do on this show, offer you a framework, a guise, a, dare we say, preview of players to watch over the course of the next few months. Just some names to keep eyes on appearing in draws here, whether it be at the 250 level, Masters 1000 level. Obviously, we're going to see so many tournaments over the course of the next few months in North America. Going to be fun for all of us to enjoy, but want to just make it a little bit easier for all of you listeners to follow all of the action. And if we're going to try and do 
all of that, you know what we like to say. We better have some help along the way here on this podcast. Thankfully, I do here as joining me on this Monday to put a final bow on all things 2022. Wimbledon is a man you know essentially as the co-host of this mini break podcast and editor, editorial producer as well for all things tennis.com, baseline tennis channel. Of course, it's our friend, David Kane. David, welcome back to the show. Wimbledon in the books. How are you feeling, my friend? Tired. <laughs> I feel tired like Nick Kyrgios. I'm exhausted. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was a wild two weeks, and I'm, I'm looking forward to recapping with you today. Yeah, it's going to be fun. How many pieces did you guys end up cranking out at baseline? Oh, I didn't do the total, but we we shattered last year's numbers uh, <laughs> in large part thanks to uh, Maggie Mayhem. Rest in peace. The the late dog of one Andy Murray was our ended up being our top performing story. I think we still need to get the the autopsy, no pun intended, on how that one did as well as it did. But it was a, a sad loss for Murray. But his loss was unfortunately my gain. Yeah, no, I, it's always fascinating. Do you look at the metrics? Do you see what stories do best? I mean, I'm sure you do. What stories typically do? Are they all big three centric? I got to be honest, I don't look in real time. I've been meaning to check now that I have, you know, greater control of the baseline regime, but I do worry that it would drive me a little nuts to be checking things minute by minute, but I have to. I mean, I think anyone with two brain cells to rub together knows that I think if you're covering Novak, Roger, or Rafa in some capacity, you're going to get butts in seats and eyes on the website. I think, you know, sometimes I think I make the job a little too hard for myself going after my passion projects. I think at this point we know where our bread is buttered. And so I think we've got a lot of Novak in the last couple of days and we're probably going to get even more as, as, uh, as we look back on Wimbledon 2022. I always joke around with Gil Gross, host of Three, a tennis show, which focuses on all things Federer, Nadal, Djokovic. I say, what's the 2030 season look like? Is it going to be a full pivot to Alcaraz-Sinner and fill in the third? Jerry Shang, maybe, for that third spot? Yeah. If you look at the numbers, you go look at YouTube. You look at the videos that typically do best at a Grand Slam highlights-wise or whether it be the matches from tennis's past that have the most views. They typically, on the men's side, involve Djokovic, Federer, Nadal on the women's side. Obviously, Serena will get outsized amounts of attention, justifiably so. An Osaka clip is always going to do well. And Drescu, one of those sneaky players who always seems to have good numbers as well. It's a fascinating topic because when you're trying to set the table for a daily show and figure out what am I going to talk about every day, what do fans want to hear about now? Obviously, the result's going to dictate some of that conversation, but I I always like to hear, you know, I feel like it must be a difficult thing as an editorial producer, especially in the early rounds of a Grand Slam when there are 128 names, 128 different storylines on the men's and women's side trying to pick which of those storylines to highlight. Absolutely. I do think we did try to do as good a job as possible highlighting some of those underdogs, those unseated and loomingses, if you will. But I think the second week we really did try to then flip the switch and, you know, dedicated to the favorites, the players that we thought we were going to see in finals weekend. But for what it's worth, I don't see three pivoting. I mean, even after the big three retire in the year 20, <laughs> 2055, I still think that there's decades of legacy content. Those three could be mining for years to come after they eventually retire or pass away. <laughs> I mean, at this point, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen first, given how long they've been on tour and how really no, none of the three 
three or three show any signs of stopping. <laughs> yeah, twenty thirty February. They're just we're gonna do a month on Indian Wells and all the Indian Wells matches. <laughs> all, all of them. Yeah. Thirty days yeah. of Indian Wells. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's like you could get thirty days worth of content. Not an unfair point to make, but certainly again the content we want to focus on here today: the Wimbledon singles finals and the players to watch this summer. Of course, the reason we're able to do that day in day out here on the Mini Break Podcast is because of the support we get from all of you fans and just to bring another event on the horizon to all of your attention our Cracked Rackets team so excited to be able to play a role broadcasting this week's Madison Keys Court of Dreams celebration of tennis event that event going to be highlighted Thursday Friday on our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel we'll have a junior clinic and in my opinion very informative exciting mental health roundtable where we discuss with Madison Keys with former ATP top 100 doubles player Nathan Healy a professional expert as well the mental taxation that life on tour provides and again how to the you know provide acts of kindness how to keep your composure how to uh, just uh, keep oneself steady in the ever-changing world with so much going on all of that again going to be on our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel on Thursday and then we get some fantastic tennis on Friday whether it's doubles whether it's Madison Keys taking on Katie McNally it's going to be really fun it's going to be a grass court event here in the United States as well always love to see that again broadcast Thursday Friday on our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel we hope all of you fans tune in of course a shout out as well to our friends at tennis point you all know the deal so i'll keep it brief tennis-point.com the promo code is cr15 with that said dk let's put a final bow on the 2022 wimbledon the place to start think it has to be novak djokovic he joins four men bjorn borg pete sampras roger federer novak djokovic That's the list of men to win four consecutive Wimbledon titles in the open era in ATP Tour history. You look for Novak Djokovic. Obviously, it's his 21st Grand Slam singles title that puts him one behind Rafael Nadal. You look for Djokovic in a season where he wasn't able to play the Australian Open, where he comes up against Nadal, falls short at the French Open. Given the current U.S. immigration law, seems unlikely he's going to be able to play the U.S. Open. This was his shot. This was the big tournament for him to put a slam on the scoreboard. And as such, I do think there were significant amounts of pressure, not only placed on him from people like us in the media who were all routinely and roundly picking him as the champion of this event, but certainly the pressure he puts on himself. A year ago at this time, he had won his 20th major title. He had a shot not only at the calendar slam, but at the golden slam to win that gold singles medal and to really put the final bow on his greatest of all time resume. Now, one year later, he was trailing Rafa by two majors with unclarity about how many majors he's even going to be able to play moving forward. And for him to you know, become the first player in the open era, in the Wimbledon men's singles draw, to win the tournament while dropping the opening set in the quarterfinals, in the semifinals, in the finals. It was Novak Djokovic at his finest DK on the court. I just thought more than anything else, and we can get into the nuances of his 4-6, 6-3, 6-4, 7-6 victory, but more than anything else, what impresses me, even at age 35, Novak Djokovic has a gear he can hit where he just says, okay, I'm turning it on. And for the next hour and a half, I'm going to float around the court. I'm not going to make a single bad decision. I'm not going to miss. 
and that gear he can hit, it's just different than anyone else we've seen in ATP Tour history. I think with Rafa, it's different because Rafael Nadal is 110% Rafa throughout the course of a match. From start to finish, you know exactly what you're going to get from Rafael Nadal. Djokovic definitely plays with his food a little bit more. It takes him a little bit longer to work his way into matches. But once he gets the rhythm, I mean, again, Nick Kyrgios, 30 aces, 62 winners against just 33 unforced errors. He made 73% of his first serves, DK. And yet again, it's Djokovic walking away with the hardware. Your reaction to his 21st major victory. I think my reaction is that in many ways, we saw two Novaks throughout this fortnight. On one hand, yes, we did see a man who played just mentally tough tennis when he absolutely needed to. Every time he was called upon to produce his best tennis or even just solid tennis, he was very rarely making unforced errors. And I mean, we even go back to the end of that fourth set against Curious. He was serving to stay in it. It's a nervous first shot but tightens up, gets the hold, and, and eventually steamrolls through the subsequent tiebreak. So in some ways, it felt like Djokovic and maybe even Nadal are as vulnerable as ever. But on the other hand, what we also saw is just how difficult, and Kyrgios even mentioned this in his post-defeat press conference, just how tough it is to beat Djokovic and even Nadal, who is also yet to lose a uh, a Grand Slam match in 2022, having given a walkover to Kyrgios. It is just how hard to beat both of them in a best-of-five match. I mean, we've seen these players, whether it was Nori or Sinner or Kyrgios or even Taylor Fritz, get very close and win the first set, even win the second set if you're Yannick Sinner, or get up two sets to one if you're Taylor Fritz. And just the the difficulty that these players have had in really shutting these guys out with, with their superior experience, with their tremendous mental toughness and fighting spirit, they're just, they remain incredibly difficult to beat. And in many ways are even tougher to beat now that we expect the sinners, the Norris and the Curioses to really put up as big of a challenge, if not to beat them as possible. So in some ways it's, it's the best of times for, for the big three or what's left of them. And, and in other ways, it's still, it's, Mightily disappointing in other ways that the, the, that the next gen were not really able to close the door. I mean, I think the most the most tragic example was Yannick Sinner, who was up a confident two sets and really just let the next three sets go. Obviously, Djokovic didn't make any mistakes, but when you have three chances to win one set and you can't do it, it's hard not to feel a bit pessimistic coming out of that match and maybe not as awed by what Djokovic was able to do coming back from two sets down, but ultimately a nervous two weeks in many respects from Djokovic, but he got the job done. He's finally at 21 slams and that was pretty much par for him and all you could have really expected from him, from him out of 2022 and he does it and he you know continues to write his name in the history book. So in many ways, as impressive as ever. Well, I want to expand upon a couple of things you touched on there. And the first is just a quick clarification because some listeners will always take uh, – take they'll just disagree. We'll leave it at that uh, with the, the idea of Nick Kyrgios and this idea of the next gen. What do you mean Nick Kyrgios is 27 years old? Well, of course, David and I pejoratively refer 
to the next gen as the next gen crew, the 1996 born 1996 or later marketing campaign that was launched with the inaugural next gen finals focusing on those players born 1996 or later the future stars now of course nick kyrgios was born in 1995 but he born a chorich alex virev were kind of the impetus for that marketing campaign if you go back to again the framework of when it was kicked off back in that what was it 2017 or 2018 season those were the guys fighting in the mix in that moment um, with with that in mind, I again you talk about the unflappability of Novak Djokovic in these big moments, and perhaps the lack of that characteristic amongst some of those next gen guys. I thought this final was not a flop. I thought this final was competitive from start to finish, and I'm curious if you would agree with that assessment because you look at some of the recent Slam finals we have seen between. Djokovic, Nadal, and guys we would qualify as next-gen competitors. Obviously, the French Open final was a bit of a flop. I mean, what, Kasparud Ruud won six games. Nadal quickly identified, if I get that ball to the backhand, I'm going to get the short ball I need, and systematically broke down, uh, obviously, everything Ruud threw at him. But you look at some of the, you know, some of the other finals of late. Medvedev's up two sets to love, has his opportunities to make it a, a you know a break in the third as well, just unable to really put his foot on the gas against Nadal, but he was right there against Rafa. And, you know, Wimbledon last year, yeah, Berrettini won the first set. I thought that one was pretty lopsided. I mean, I'm, I'm throwing out Medvedev Djokovic from last year's U.S. Open final because Djokovic just had nothing left in the tank after that Zverev match. And credit to Medvedev for taking advantage of that fact, but you got to keep that one in a vacuum. I mean, again, some of the other you ones. You chalk up that 2021 20, U.S. Open final to Zverev and not the fact that he was a win away from no. the calendar year Grand Slam and no, emotional it, exhaustion. It, You're really chalking up to the no, no, physical it was, exhaustion it was, Zverev. It was everything. I'm saying okay. all of that, plus then he played the five sets against Zverev, and it was just like that was the final nail in the coffin. Fair like, enough. I'm, okay. I'm not saying <laughs> that was what did it. I'm saying he was 98% fatigue. That Zverev match was the final 2%, and then it was just the gas tank was empty. Yes, okay. I appreciate your clarification there. The point being – there's a lot of talk about the next gen flopping and just not being able to break through against these guys. I do think they're getting closer. Like I thought Kyrgios played well. He blinked twice. Like 3-5, love 40. Obviously 5-3 Djokovic serving for the second set, love 40. Kyrgios a little lax on the love 40 return, then starts yelling at his box. And that's a separate discussion we can get into in a moment. But, you know, Djokovic... I thought played five good points consecutively to get himself out of that love 40 grind. And that's the testament to, look, he's going to be at 90% the entire match. If you blink for even a moment, he's going to make you pay. Djokovic able to do that. The other prominent example, obviously, 4-5, 40 love for him to you know be on serve and have the three-game points, throw in the double fault at Deuce, clearly again start the chirping at his box once more. But then there was the long pause the bathroom break between sets three and four. And I thought that was tactical from Novak Djokovic. I thought that was, hey, let's let Kyrgios stew a little bit in his frustration with his anger at letting another 40-love opportunity vanish. And to Kyrgios's credit, I thought he played a pretty tight fourth set. Like, I thought he protected his serve well. 
throughout the course of this match against Kyrgios. You look at the numbers from this one, makes 73% of his first serves, 30 aces, won 70% of those first serve points. Again, 62 winners, even if you take out the aces, 32 winners against 26 ground stroke or volley unforced errors. It was a pretty tidy performance from Nick Kyrgios. I thought physically... He play, you know, again, he stood the test. I thought, you know, he started approaching the net more in sets three, four, just trying to put some pressure to break the rhythm of Djokovic. I actually think the next gen's getting closer. Is the point I'm trying to make here? And I thought Kyrgios's, I thought his fight was indicative of that. You disagree by the shaking of your head? I don't Tell know. Me I'm wrong. I like being told I'm wrong. It's hard to look back now that it's over, knowing what happened and who wins, sure. to say how close it felt in the moment. And obviously with the most recent comparison being the Casper Rude and Rafael Nadal final and how much less close that match was, this was certainly a better effort from Nick Kyrgios. However, in my opinion, once Kyrgios doesn't get that advantage on Djokovic early in the, early in the second set, he just closed out a very emphatic opening set. Other sets that Djokovic had lost, he didn't play that well. Kyrgios won that set point blank. We could talk about the double fault on break point, but really that was the only point that Djokovic really gave up in that first set. Kyrgios really outplayed him all the way. Once he didn't break in that second set, in many ways, it didn't quite feel in doubt. I mean, yes, there were some moments where you felt like, okay, he's holding on, but it just, once he didn't have, it felt like the kind of thing where it needed to be a part in the part in the expression, a clean kill. Like once Nick went off the boil a little bit, it felt like it was going to be very hard to rein him back in, especially with Djokovic's experience and the fact that he was, from that point on, he didn't play really another bad key point Novak for the rest of the match. And so it really was up to Kyrgios to keep up. And so in that way, it never really felt like the match was in his hands as well as he served and as good as he played in in, in many respects. Obviously, I think for him, he's, he'll be proud of the score scoreboard he was able to put up. Certainly had opportunities once you get in that tiebreak in the fourth set. Could he have gotten himself into a fifth? And he felt pretty confident that if it got into a fifth, he would have had a great chance. But, you know, yeah. hindsight is, is twenty twenty, as they say. No, and played um, a really sloppy fourth set breaker, including you could brutal. tell the, the forehand slap for 5-1 before the switch of sides. That was yeah. sort of like, okay, this match is over. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't great. It wasn't a great moment because it did feel like for as close as he'd managed to stay in the match, those key moments really define them. And it's, it's just a tough one because it, in many ways, like I said, you know, Medvedev was up two sets and love 40 on a doll doesn't get a ton, you know, Casper Ruud plays a great two weeks, gets blitzed in the final. Nick Kyrgios plays a really great mature, you know, for the most part, two weeks to make his first slam final. And then, you know, doesn't really get quite close enough against Djokovic. And I did feel once Nadal pulled out that this was really Kyrgios' best shot to win a major. Did, what, did it feel possible for him to beat Nadal and Djokovic back-to-back to win a slam? That's as tough an ask as any for anybody in tennis. But could he beat Djokovic with a few days off and feeling fresh? It felt possible. So obviously my expectations were quite high. I think I did pick him to win the match. And based on the way he played the first, I was really disappointed that he really wasn't able to replicate that in the same way in sets two, three, and four, particularly in the return games, just played too many sloppy points and didn't make enough inroads on the Djokovic serve to really make him think about it. Maybe that also helped him Novak play as well as he did. But then at the, on the third hand, that love 40 game in the second set really defined it. If, if, if he didn't have his chances missed early in the second, that love 40 comeback kind of, uh, I think, did him in. 
Well, you look for Novak Djokovic, 285-5 and five when he's won the first set in his career at the majors. That's just ridiculous amounts of success. If you're going to beat him, you need to take the first set. And to Nick Kyrgios' credit, he did that. Takes it 6-4. I thought more than anything else, I was so impressed by how physical he was in the first set, willing to play backhand to backhand, forcing Novak to generate something special out of that corner. Uh, But then again, Novak now 45-36 and when he drops the first set. So even if you win the first set, to your point, it's just so difficult to sustain that level. And Novak Djokovic wins 83% of his first serve points, 46 winners against 17 unforced errors. Again, was it his best? No. Was he exceptionally good? Yes. Disciplined from the start of that second set onwards. And again, you look for Novak, who for a, a little victory, I suppose, for the crocodiles out there. Djokovic retakes his spot as the number one player in tennis abstracts. ELO ratings. Carlos Alcaraz had surpassed him earlier. The real in number the year. one. Yeah, no longer the case, although somehow Novak Djokovic falling to number seven in the ATP rankings. We've talked about the impact of the lack of points being offered by Wimbledon, perhaps no better epitomized than by that fact. I mean, as we look, again, putting the bow on this 2022 Wimbledon, you talked about the opportunity it was for Nick Kyrgios, who, by the way, right now, Nick Kyrgios, in terms of overall ELO ratings via our friends at Tennis Abstract, he's number 11 overall, currently number 7 in terms of 2021 results. I mean, to Kyrgios' credit, you look, he didn't play the clay court season, so of course his stats are going to be padded by that fact, but 21-7. and seven. Overall, this season, he's winning 75% of his matches. Even without these Wimbledon finals points, he's worked himself back into the top 50. Let's start here with Kyrgios. Over under one and a half more major quarterfinals in his career. Could I see him making two more major quarterfinals? Yeah, I think one over one and a half. I think I'd have to take the over there. Like I said, like I've been saying for the last couple of months, it feels like in many respects, Nick has found this work-life balance. You know, he doesn't want to play the tournaments he doesn't want to play. He shows up when he wants to. And, you know, like we often say about Nadal, when he takes the court, he's ready to compete. (laughs) It's funny to compare the two. They're, as even Nick pointed out, they're very different players and very different personalities. But I think in this, this sense, they are a bit similar where Nick has only taken the court when he's wanted to. And we've seen the benefits of that. Really very few just give up matches feeling like there was no point in him even even being out there even if he took some brutal losses he was giving it his all to the very end um as as well as you could say when it comes to nick and so i think for him you know he's clearly not someone playing for ranking points based on the schedule so the fact that he wasn't being given ranking points here is not going to affect him positively or negatively and he feels that wherever he is in the draw he can make a uh make a meal of it (laughs) in the in the positive sense and so it would be interesting to see what he's able to do this summer where he competes how much he competes in light of what might have to go on at home what he what he might have to answer to down there but what he will end up having to do the USMR courts US Open could he take this momentum to New York it feels like he could it feels like he even said he he got a really great lesson in playing the two weeks of a slam from winning the Australian Open men's doubles with Nasi Kokonakis. Now he has another two-week experience making the final. As exhausting as it was, he's got two months to recover. It feels like he can maybe do it. Maybe not make another final, but certainly make at least one more quarterfinal, and then that puts him only one away from being uh, over that over that one and a half. What, what say you? 
No, I would. How many more Wimbledons is he going to play? If he plays four more Wimbledons, I think he will get one more there because how he serves, particularly with right now how he's ranked, and if there are any retroactive points assigned from the Wimbledon onto his ranking, I mean, he could enter next year's Wimbledon as a top 30 seed. And if he's a top 30 seed at Wimbledon, his pathway to a third, fourth round just becomes that much easier. I think he'll get one in Australia before he retires. I just think to do it in front of that crowd on that stage is something that after winning the doubles title there this season is something he would just want to do. And ultimately, Nick Kyrgios does what he wa- will only do what he wants to do. And I would put that on the list of things he'd want to accomplish. So I'd say one there, one Wimbledon as such, slight over. He has done it before. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, no, no. I, meant, I, I should say yeah. one more time. Sure. It made it seem like it was something on, on his bucket list. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. I would, it, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens when he comes back to Australia, you know, 12 months removed from winning the the slam with Tanasi, you know, what he's been able to do now in singles, you know. And he, you know, he's someone whose game translates to all surfaces as much as he feels like he can only do well on fast surfaces where he wants to really maximize his chances. And maybe the more that he succeeds, he may open himself up. I think he has said he wants to play Paris one more time too, because I think Costine wants to go to Paris. So we might see him at the French Open next year. You never know, if, uh, depending on how everything shakes out over the next 12 months. But he's got all the tools. It's why he's been so frustrating over the years. He's got all the tools, all the weapons, you know, everything possible to come very close to winning a major title if not winning one. So I think um, to to short him at, at under under two quarterfinals for the rest of his career, however long that is. I mean, Novak's already to come back next year and he's what, 45? I mean, like these guys are, these these careers are getting longer and longer. And even if, if Nick has threatened retirement on multiple occasions, he hasn't done it yet. And, and I, I don't imagine he would do it after all these improvements. With that said, Court date for him in Australia coming up. We'll continue to learn more about that allegation as he faces significant allegations of assault off the court from a former spouse dating back to an incident in December 2021. We haven't seen the final numbers yet. So, you know, I think I saw $7 million or something for BBC, which sounded like a very good number. I want to see what the ESPN numbers are. I'll tell you this, and I don't remember if I've shared this anecdote on the podcast or not. I don't believe I have. It was 2 a.m. Sunday morning, and of course I'm up 2 a.m. Sunday morning. You want to know what I was doing at 2 a.m. Sunday morning, David? I was tweeting out, because I was looking at some final stats, that Novak Djokovic now 40 40- uh, 48 and five in his career against players six foot four or taller at the Grand Slams. Doesn't that check out for things I'd be doing at 2 a.m. Right? That would be on the list. That's that's not a lie, folks. This is a, a real life story. This is just proof. Yes, o- only one of us would be thinking of tall men at two in the morning, and it's not me. So no, it definitely makes sense that it would be you. <laughs> Jeff Sackman once tweeted out that tennis abstract data user traffic was at a like a low for the season early in September and he goes, it must be Rosh Hashanah services at the Gruskin house. And it was a really funny tweet. I was like, that's, I showed that to my parents cause they laughed. Um, but anyways, all of that said, um, you know, again, this idea for Nick Kyrgios, once we get that, you know, again, 2 AM Sunday morning, I get a call from someone I lived with my so- sophomore year of college. I have not spoken to him since that sophomore year of college. And the reason I picked up the phone and I was like, 
are you in prison and I'm the A in your contact and you just had to pick the first one and you're like, Alex Gruskin, pick. And I was like, because we just haven't spoken. He's like, no, I, I'm actually curious what you think about Kyrgios versus Djokovic tomorrow. And the fact that I received that sort of call and the amount of texts I received, I'm sure you got a couple in your life as well. You have two schools of thought. You saw the people tuning in to Kyrgios versus Djokovic on social media. Part of that is it's a middle, you know, it's a Sunday in July, not incredible amounts of sporting things going on. You also have the looming assault allegations, the unequivocal abuse of lines people, of umpires, of opponents on court from Kyrgios. I ask you, David Kane, for the last time in this fortnight, this final, good or bad for the sport? I mean, I will quote um, an article that I was reading in Slate uh, this morning that described it as the final that everyone deserved and no one wanted or no one wanted and everybody <laughs> deserved because it Good. was just after all of all of what happened with Wimbledon banning Russians and Belarusians and also throwing out protesters asking where Peng Shui is. It just felt like the ideal slash not ideal final to have, you know, ardent anti-vaxxer directly or indirectly, Novak Djokovic up against uh, Nick Kyrgios, known terror and alleged domestic abuser uh, competing for a Grand Slam final. I mean, is this good for tennis? I mean, uh, I don't know. It's hard to say because in, part of you wants to say, think of the children, think of the role model, think of the role models they're supposed to be. I mean, I think in the, unfortunately, in the ways that count in the world, it probably is good for tennis because as you said, people were watching, people were writing about it and, and people were engaged in the sport for good or for bad. And so in that way, it probably is good for the sport. And this is not the last big final that will ever be played. So there can always be better. <laughs> yeah. Fair. I do enjoy the casual excitement. One counter I saw to the idea that this was good for the sport was how do you retain these fans? Are they only in for the, you know, pejorative car crash that is this final between Kyrgios and Djokovic will they tune in to casual second round action between Krajinovic and Hachinov this year in New York maybe not um, if that's the case then how good was this beyond the vacuum of an exciting moment in again early July in the sporting world that's a question that remains to be answered now oh go ahead but that's also a hard conversion it's hard For to sure. take someone from a grand slam final to then ask them to watch you know either intermittent or streamed coverage of, of a Grand Slam early round match. I mean, those are two very different asks. I mean, as, as long as a best of five men's match can be, it's probably not going to go more than four hours on a Sunday. It's a final. There's prestige. There's probably two, one or more stars competing in that match. It's very difficult to get that kind of person, that kind of person who watches a Grand Slam final, then convert them into this hardcore super fan. I think that's just a tough ask in general. I think because we are the super fans, we try to make that conversion happen or we try to see what we can do to, to make that happen. But at the same time, you know, that's, that's always going to be brutal. I think the best you can ask for, if you're looking from an American perspective is to just, you know, flood the zone with, a, with as many, you know, young American stars. And I think we're kind of getting that, you know, on both the men's and women's sides, whether it was Taylor Fritz on the men's, Amanda Nisimova in the women's. I mean, I think the more that we get that kind of fresh blood on an American side, we're probably going to get more butts and seats and more people following along day by day. I mean, that was going back to the glory days of the 80s and 90s. We just had so many 
you know, uh, contenders. So I think yeah. that's ultimately what gets people in on a day by day basis. It's a bit of a tangent. I was talking with a former top 100 player this weekend and appearance fees happened to come up and just who is actually worth an appearance fee in today's tennis, who actually puts butts in seat, makes paying for their presence worthwhile for a tournament. Certainly all the big three qualify in that category and what they've done for appearance fees in terms of, again, just raising what the median number is for not necessarily themselves, but obviously the windfalls for guys like Zverev, Tsitsipas, Medvedev, you go further down the list. There are still American tournaments that will give an appearance fee to an American just to have them in the field. How valuable that is, I don't know, but I'll say this, Djokovic, Federer, Nadal, Murray, I think, does, especially at this point of his career, people will come watch him play. And then I think Kyrgios has to be on that list because if nothing else, he'll put butts in the seats. I was there at the City Open last year when even in one match or two matches, he did exactly that. And it doesn't matter if it's a singles or a doubles court, you know, it's worthwhile for the tournament. But that might be like the list of five right there of people who you're actually guaranteed, okay, we'll have a full stadium if they play. Well, he's, I mean, Nick is someone, he's such a rare exception because he is the kind of person that you would probably tune into a first round for, because one, there's no guarantee he'll be in the final. And two, you know that that match is going to be exciting or crazy or dramatic. You know, if it's a, even if it's a Novak Djokovic playing a perfunctory first round, it may not be the thing that gets you to sit down on a Monday in, in late June, or even, you know, a fourth round on the 4th of July, you may skip that day unless you know that, you know, uh, a pass and curious are ready to rip each other's throats out again. That might get, <laughs> that might get you to sit down again, but yeah, I think it's, it's people who, who want to invest in future stars and people who know that they're going to get a show. I think that's how you convert the grand slam final viewer into more of a daily, uh, more daily enthusiast. Yeah. Fair. Certainly again, have you written a piece on appearance fees ever? I haven't. It's one of those things that's probably yeah. one of my blind spots. I, I, you know, you hear whispers about players getting appearance. Fees. I think the most famous one I remember is I think when Jack Sock got an appearance fee to play in Auckland, it was, I think it was the year after he'd, you know, cracked the top 10 and made it into the ATP finals. And then I think made a bit of a miss of that week, allegedly. <laughs> and I think there was a lot of grumblings because it felt like he wasn't necessarily putting in his best effort and he had been offered money to, to compete. This is just from what I, my hazy memories, all alleged. Aggregated. And, and Send it yeah. out. David Kane accuses Jack Sock of tanking match. Uh, Things certainly did not go great for Sock in the year that, that went on after that. So maybe there's something to it, but that's sort of in the hazy watercolored memories of my mind is something I, I, I do remember. But but speaking of appearance fees and appearing, I mean, I think the fact of the matter is if you're trying to get players invested or rather fans invested in players from this Wimbledon, probably not going to see Djokovic for the next couple of months. No, uh, fair. I Again, it's a fascinating question to discuss. I think it's a topic under discussed. And yeah, hopefully, what were they? Tennis Buzz? Who was it that was coming after you? Whatever. Tennis Buzz is going to aggregate that and say, David Kane now accusing players with unfounded, substantial, uh, unsubstantiated allegations. Oh, the tweets match. that I don't see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even want to, I don't even want to let people know that I don't see most of the tweets that are sent at me, but I don't. Can we, can we say this? <laughs> if they're listening to minute 37 of the mini break podcast, they deserve to know that fun fact about you, right? Their tweets you're listening 
and see. Uh, yeah, my my mentions and ads are quite clean. It's only yeah. it's only me and my friends. Okay, that's <laughs> what I like to hear. Well, last question on the men's topic. We spent far too long on it. I do we apologize did. for that <laughs> fact, but I'm going to throw one more at you. Novak Djokovic now since the start of 2021, 78 and 12 overall. He's holding 86.9% of the time. His career average, 85.9. He's breaking 32.1% of the time. His career average, 321 you look again, that win percentage, 78 and 12 overall. It's an 87% win percentage for his career, Novak Djokovic, 83.4. Is he still in his prime? Like, is this just the extended prime of Novak Djokovic? Because the numbers say we're still seeing that same guy out there, or at least 93% of, maybe not the peak peak, but still more broadly the prime. I mean, it's funny. I was watching some clips of him at the U.S. Open in 2010 and 2011 against Federer. And that was probably the first reminder in a while that that man has aged. <laughs> he did look significantly yeah. younger in those videos, you know, 10 years ago than he does now. But in, in many ways, it feels like he hasn't really aged a day. He is the least injured of the big three, as much as he may have some niggling pains and, and aches here and there. He's certainly not on par with, you know, having to miss months and months like Federer or having, you know, to put his foot to sleep like Nadal. I mean, he is, even though he is seemingly a distant second at this point to, to Rafael Nadal in the grand slam count, he is certainly the one who seems to be most likely to win another five or six slams just based on his physicality today. Now, will that be the case this time next year? I mean, if we, if we look back at Serena in 2015, we wouldn't have thought, or even 2016, we wouldn't have thought there wouldn't be that same, drop off, but I mean, obviously she went and had a baby. So maybe that's not a great comparison if she kept playing and maybe not decided to have a family, maybe things would have been a bit different, but certainly that drop off happens. And those nervy points that we saw from him in, in these matches against Sinner and, and Nori and Kyrgios, those might start to creep in and key points. I mean, that was one of the things that I, I, a drum that I was beating through the fortnight was would the disappointment of not getting a calendar year grand slam really shake him in these key moments so far we've seen no, but you know, as this window gets more and more narrow of where he's allowed to compete in terms of major tournaments, the pressure is only going to get bigger. And Nadal seems to be making as brave of a last stand as possible. I imagine he will be healthy enough to compete at the U.S. Open. And, and given his success there in the past, it wouldn't shock me if he ends up winning it. And that puts him another two slams back, Djokovic. I mean, we don't even talk about the fact that, you know, three years ago when Federer was serving up two match points in the 2019 Wimbledon final, he was far and away the number one, and now he's number three. I mean, things things can change very quickly in men's tennis, Well, even at the top. You brought it up, so we got to do it. Federer is clearly three now, right? I haven't had this conversation yet. This is probably the podcast platform to do it, and we can do it separately in – uh, I even I hesitate to even say the words out loud now because some people just slammed on the brakes, turned off the podcast, threw the phone, and said, I will never listen to Alex Ruskin again. I am not diminishing nor denying the immense accomplishments of Roger Federer. You're asking me, you know, from ages 9 to 14, when any young tennis fan, in my opinion, is probably first getting into the sport, all I remember is Australia, Wimbledon, New York. Federer, Federer, Federer. And yeah, Rafa would win the French Open. But that was the story of men's tennis for me in my most formative years as a fan. And there is no denying the the grace, the je ne sais quoi that comes with Roger Federer. That's part of the allure. It's not just the on-court accomplishments, which, let's be honest, Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal have passed him. One of the two guys in 
I think every category except for total titles at this point and maybe total wins overall as well. Like those are the two things. That's what Federer has left. Masters titles, major titles, finals. Obviously Djokovic has caught him there as well at the slams. You know, yes, Federer has this, the Wimbledon titles, but Djokovic is coming after him. Rafa has Roland Garros, which, with all due respect, he's better at the French Open than Federer was at Wimbledon. So it kind of diminishes the immense amount of successes in the framework of the greatest of all time conversation. Let's be clear. That's the framework we're playing here. Roger Federer is unequivocally one of the three best players in men's tennis history. And the argument, I don't think we're ready to eliminate him. Well, that's the question, David Kane. I flip it to you. Our favorite bit. Has Roger Federer been eliminated from the greatest of all time conversation? I'm going to say no. I agree. And I'm going to tell you why. I mean, it's funny because I know you, like me, are probably one of those people who spend way too much time on players' Wikipedia pages and looking at that big table of slam results and master's results. Shout out to the table. Shout out to the table. The best invent. You're so – I'm so glad you said that. I mean, you look, you show me the color yellow. I say semifinal. You show me the, the neon green. I say grand slam champion. It's just one of those things now. It's like the, that sense memory or you look at a color and you can smell it. You know, the, a green, neon green smells like gold to me. But um, I, it's funny. It is really crazy because, again, you talk about growing up and, and associating three of the, out of the four majors with Federer and Nadal with the French Open. And, I, and it really is crazy how much of those 20 slams that Federer won were done so in that relatively small six-year stretch of 2003 to 2009 and how much of the last almost now decade and a half has been um, monopolized by Nadal and Djokovic who have, you know, in, in many ways, Federer has not gotten significantly worse. Nadal and Djokovic have just been so, 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 so good. And he has had to contend with both of them at, at most of these majors. And you, know, you think about the last couple of years now, opportunities he may or may not have had having to maybe compete with one or less of them, you know, like even, you know, going back to this Australian open, what could he have done had he been healthy or not having to compete with Djokovic? That would be one more to his tally, but regardless of where he finishes in the debate, I mean, I think we go back to people, tennis historians who talk about Borg and McEnroe and the numbers start of sort of matter less, you know, even going back to Rod Laver. And I think you, there's just this, archetype that Roger Federer fulfills so perfectly. And we go back to that Rolex commercial, which was like, forget the numbers, just vibes. And I think if you're going on just vibes, Roger Federer is always going to be the greatest of all time for a particular subset of people. And and unfortunately for, I would say, particularly English speaking um, tennis fans, Roger Federer is the one who I think tickles the funny bone of most of the people who are going to be writing the history books. And so I think even if he finishes third, there is going to be a push to talk about the grace of Federer, the elegance of Federer, the the sportsmanship of Federer, which supersedes the amount of titles. Even if he doesn't have the most titles, he left the sport better than he found it. I mean, there are so many narratives that you can write about Federer that are not reliant on his title count. And that's probably going to irritate a lot of people if and when he finishes behind those other two. But them's the breaks, man. (laughs) No, you want to make the efficiency argument again, to your point from the 03 Wimbledon to the 2010 Australian Open, Roger Federer made at least the semifinals in all but two. 
Grand Slams. He made at least the finals of all but five total Grand Slams in a, you know, whatever that is, 26-slam run where he was a finalist at just about all of them, if not winning the title. That said, Djokovic is now 21-slam titles in 68 slam main draw appearances even that much more efficient which is just ridiculous and for all of Federer's success he's the only guy with a hundred wins at two or you know at two of the grand slams Djokovic the only guy with 80 plus wins at all four of the grand slams it's just like they're catching up that's as what happens in time people get to play catch up that said to your point and you said it perfectly the myth of Roger Federer, what he means to a generation of tennis fans, that's why he's still alive in the conversation because he is a global icon. He is someone who has converted people to following tennis throughout the course of his career simply to be in awe of what Federer has accomplished. And that's not to say, by the way, that Djokovic and Nadal haven't done that either. But that's why Federer remains a part of the conversation because A, the numbers are good enough that he, it's relevant. It's not like it's a seven slam gap. It's a two slam gap. And then with the Masters, with the weeks at world number one, et cetera, et cetera, he's not a definitive number three in every argument. He is two or number one in some cases. I also think, you know, again, it's just, it, yeah, it's what he means to people. It, it's that the tennis is closed, that the peak, that's the argument I was looking for. Bjorn Borg stays alive in the conversations because he didn't play 20 years. He played a really f***ing good seven. And, like, Federer has a really f***ing good seven plus in his resume. I mean, even in the women's game, there was arguments he made for Steffi, for Serena, for Chrissy, for Martina. I mean, they're all relative to one another within five slams, and that's that keeps that debate going. And I think... There, the only thing I can imagine is if, in fact, Nadal finishes first, I think it will be slightly harder to make the argument for Federer. But I think if Djokovic finishes first, you're going to be seeing a lot of attempts to really prop up the legacy of Roger Federer. And I think that's going to be a very easy dichotomy to make, particularly as the number of slams that Novak Djokovic misses due to his refusal to be vaccinated against COVID-19. I mean, there's there are so many angles that you can really attack this from. This is not going to be, it hasn't been a clean narrative for almost two decades. I highly doubt it's ever going to be one clean answer. As much as I would love to say whoever wins the most slams is the greatest of all time, there is always going to be someone who's going to slide into the DMs and make a counter argument. I think for me, ultimately, I might just, I might lean back on most slams one because I'm so tired of this argument. You guys, I really am. <laughs> if it's Djokovic, if it's Nadal, if it's better, who cares? They're number one. They're the greatest of all time. I'll, yeah. be, I'll be busy watching the the 68th greatest of all time out on court 18. Yeah, it's fair. It's, look, I'll be at the Rome Challenger. It's hilarious. I'm going to, this person will remain unnamed. Gil Gross texted me and goes, Hey, do you, you know, all these Americans playing at the Rome Challenger. What's up with that? And I texted him. I go, don't get mad at me. Rome, Georgia. Rome, Georgia. And he goes, oh. And it was a very nice little revelation. Yeah, I agree with you. It's a fun argument to have because of how good the argument can be, how nuanced the debate. You can literally get into the head-to-head percentages. But his backhand slice, could you do that? And it's all part of the narrative, and it's a very fun conversation to have. But that said, we've had enough conversation on the men's side. Let's flip gears 
talk about a first-time Grand Slam champion and validation for Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. Let me give you an outlay right now of what the property looks like. It's still, you know, you drive in, you see the clubhouse, fantastic room, you know, again, all the appliances you're looking for. We've got it all there, whether it be the workout room, whether it be the state-of-the-art facilities, the steam room, you've got the sauna, you've got everything you're looking for, a little golf course action in the back overlooking a fantastic fantastic pond with yes we go waterfall at serena williams power tennis country club and you know property closest to the clubhouse queen serena who of course is the namesake of the club her power tennis elite and a definitive style of power tennis that has defined a generation of tennis players she gets the top-notch property you know next to her Naomi Osaka bought the big yacht, uh, big yard, because look, she just has the ability to replicate that on serve. That was the start of this comparison. Now you've got Kvitova in the neighborhood, obviously hanging out as well. We've made the Ostapenko, the house at the end of the country club. You never know. Halloween, is it on? Is she going all in or is she keeping the lights off and just putting candy out on the front porch? I was going to lobby for a name change, but I don't think I can anymore after this riff. I, I, think, yeah. I think it's definitively the Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club is much of a mouthful as that is, but yeah. go ahead. Exactly. <laughs> no, and I mean, again, we long ago, start of 2020, when she, you know, goes final, title, third round Australia lost to Barty, final, final, we offered privileges for Elena Rubakina to come hang out, use the training facilities, which by the way, we have grass courts. We have indoor clay to prepare for Stuttgart, the one facility in the world that has indoor clay facilities for preparation. Um, we invited her. First, it was, you know, 2010. I'm not going to lie. She had to be a valet. She had to earn her stripes. But then after that run in 2020, it was okay. You can golf on weekends. You can come hang out for the brunches on Mother's Day, Father's Day. Bring the family if need be. You would a slam. It's full-on induction. She's got the new house. She's hanging out right next to Petra Kvitova now. Elena Rabakina just chilling in Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. And it was that display of power that separated her throughout the course of her run. But in particular, these last two matches, I don't think Simona Halep played poorly. I just thought Rabakina was better in the semifinals. And then, you know, for Rabakina, 3-6, 6-2, 6-2 to knock off Own Jabour and drop the first set the way that she did, but then completely flip the script in sets two and three and just the dominance she showed on serve. Again, the ability to play on her terms, the plus one tennis we saw. It was not the cleanest tennis in the final, no doubt about that. And given that lack of cleanliness that lack of rhythm in this match who's the player who just again doesn't have to do much but can do enough stays in control from start to finish it's Elena Rabakina her power tennis wins out three six six two six two we talked about it during the tournament David but it just this with all the chaos we've seen on the WTA tour this just kind of felt right like it felt like Elena Rabakina kind of I mean obviously we had a lot of absences but this one made sense to me what say you exactly what I was going to say. Isn't yeah. it great when we agree? I mean, <laughs> I like to think I know a fair a bit about women's tennis, having watched it religiously for the last going on two decades now. And for the last two and a half years, pandemic included, not a ton of it has made sense to me. And it started to feel like this is no longer a sport that I recognize in many respects. And to watch Rabakina play the game that she plays, really, as they would say on Twitter and the tweets that I do see, 
expose the girls as she did against Simona Halep and even on Jabor in the final, just pound the crap out of the ball, relentless offense, precise, flat hitting. This is tennis that makes sense to me. <laughs> and so I was very grateful to see it play out. I mean, I was fully expecting on Shabor to, you know, really just flummox Rabakina in many respects. She had the crowd in the palm of her hands with her trick shots, with her slices, with her variation of pace, with her abil- ability to inject pace and sort of, you know, leave a player flat footed with when she can go for a power shot. This is someone who can hit every shot in tennis. And I think what we saw with the nerves of a final to be spoiled for choice, is it necessarily the best option when you're just looking to get the ball over the net? Rabakina had a very clear mission in mind and she got it done. And she got it done in the same way against Halep, who served poorly, it must be said. But I think that's really made the difference between a close match and a not close match. And to see her then go up against Jabor in the final and shake off having lost the first set in a match that you're not necessarily favored to win and just storm back. And and again, talk about never in doubt that third set by the time she held from love 40 down, that match was effectively over. And, you know, that's what we're looking for in this sort of, in the wake of this post Ash Barty world, we've got Iga Svantec and we're looking for a few other players to bring that level of intensity and Rabakina with her technique, with her composure, seems like one of the few players who, if she can maintain this level, compete with an Igish Fountex. So I think in that way, it was the best possible news. And, and, and to put a bow on it, we go back to whether this was going to be an asteriskable Wimbledon. Djokovic curious in the final, Rabakina Jabor in the women's side, Rabakina wins, Djokovic wins. I don't think you can asterisk this one, folks. Yeah. Well, you look for Elena Rabakina since the start of that 2020 season, which really was her break. And we have been. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it, which really was her breakout. Yeah, I mean, again, Elena Rabakina, 90-45 now overall. She's winning two-thirds of her matches over a a two-and-a-half-year stretch. And look, it's not only against cupcakes. You look for her during this stretch of time. Yes, 30-34 and against the top 50, but against the top 20, 14-16. and Against the top 10, 6-11. and She's playing everyone competitively. Again, the weapons she possesses, you look for the hold percentage now for Elena Rabakina, obviously a top three server on the WTA Tour. That number, uh, awfully impressive. Again, you look overall in 2022, hold percentage, how frequently you're holding serve. You know, players who are holding over 77% of the time. There are two of them, Naomi Osaka and Elena Rabakina. Rabakina, 78.4% of the time now hold percentage after this Wimbledon. That's what separated her throughout the course of this tournament. Again, she dropped just two sets on her way to the title. And no, there weren't a lot of seeds on the resume, but Vandeweghe, former Wimbledon semifinalist, Andrescu, who we both thought uh, was quarterfinalist, not semifinalist. David Mouthing. No disrespect to Magdalena Rebarkova. No, no, I appreciate that. Again, this is why we always need you on the podcast. Shout out to David for the correction. Andrescu, who played a really good grass court season, was definitely on the short list of contenders entering the tournament. She beats her in straights. Jung Chin Wen, you could see a long tenure of grass court success for her throughout her career. Alia Tomjanovic, who's almost the litmus test of how good are you on a grass court. If you can beat me, you're good. If you can't, you're not. Then to beat Halep, who just physically was on another planet, and I don't think played poorly from the baseline, but Rabakana just overwhelmed her with her weapons. She figured Jabour out, and just the power didn't allow Jabour to get into her playbook. To your point, yeah, no asterisk. Elena Rabakana is a worthy champion on the WTA Tour, and you know I tweeted out this stat, and 
it, it got plenty of kind mentions that you would have avoided in you uh, after tweeting it out there. Now, I believe seven champions age 25 or younger, seven Grand Slam champions on the WTA Tour. And, you know, certainly Osaka's got four of them. Iga's got two of them. You've got some of the one slammers like an Ostapenko, you know, certainly Kenin, uh, Radakanu, Rabakana. I'm missing one, but there is another one. The, the broader point being there's a lot of young talent on the WTA Tour. And the last time we had you, we talked about Tier 1, Tier 2, Tier 3, how Shviantek, Barty were Tier 1 players, players who you knew could show up at any Grand Slam. They're going to contend for the title. There's a massive Tier 2, and it ranges from the Conteve run, the consistency of Sakari, Krachikova, you know, the Jabours of the world. All these players have been jockeying for position to try and, you know, either A, be at the top of Tier 2 or elevate themselves into those definitive Tier 1 Grand Slam contenders. Again, someone with the power tennis of Rabakana in Tier 1, to your point, it just makes sense. Well, I think two points there. I think one... I don't think Sviantek and Barty were tier one at the same time. I think Barty exited stage left, left the door open, and Iga became a tier one player. And I think part of the problem with the current women's field is, in many ways, a lack of a tier two. It's sort of a tier one, an empty tier two, and then a lot of people in tier three, and then more people in tier four. And sort of, and strangely, the tier four people tend to perform better at majors. I mean, we go back to this draw that Rybakina had. She didn't have to play that many seeds. In many ways, that makes it a tougher draw, given the way that the, the fields have panned out in the last couple of months. Getting an Annette Kontavite, the number two seed, would that have been a tougher draw for, for Rabakina? Probably not. It probably would have made it a bit easier if she could have made it out of the um, the kontavite uh quarter, I believe it was, because I don't think either of them made it to the second week. That's right. Um, so I think Rabakina had a very had a solidly tough draw, whether it was Lucky Loser, Vandaway, as you said, Andreescu. Tomijanovic, Halep, I, I did, I did, I admit I got swept up in the Halep hype. She played two really great matches and then sort of came back to the level that we've started to expect from her in the last couple of weeks. Now, whether she comes away from this tournament, seeing this is what I can do at my peak, how, what do I do to replicate this? Uh, you hope that's the case. She's certainly been around and been a top 10 player long enough to, you would hope, know how to generate that kind of level more consistently, but it, was not there against Rubakin and, and Rubakin took full advantage and the same thing in the final. Jabor dipped and really felt the pressure of the occasion. She certainly could see it on her face after she lost the match. She felt like she had it in her hands and then had her head in her hands because she was so disappointed. And Rubakin just, again, capitalized and never let up. And I think that we go back to technique. It is clean, solid, precise technique off the serve. She's the current ace leader on the WTA, RIP, Carolina Pliskova, and just has easily repeatable ground stroke technique. And it just, it's, it's almost impervious to nerves in many respects. And, and yes, she hasn't been perfect at majors in the last year and a half, but we go back to 2020, six months before that, she was outside of the top hundred. This was a very quick uh, turnaround for Ibaka, you know, who was made her grand slam main draw, I believe at the U S open, she was a qualifier. She won her first title in the summer, missed the ranking cutoff for the U S open, had to qualify and make her grand slam main draw debut there. And she was just moving up the roller coaster when the pandemic happened. She spoke about it in press, how she really didn't practice that much during the pandemic. And, you know, with the lockdown, it just, it was very hard to kind of get back on the horse after the way that she started her, that season. And it took her a while. And you hope now that with everything that's about to, to happen with her, that she's able to deal with the pressure and uh, get the water off the duck's back as, as one might say, and, 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 play more of this tennis because although they didn't get ranking points, she comes away with 
cash money and plenty of momentum. And you hope that that momentum carries through the summer. 28 and 12 now overall on the year, winning 70% of her matches. Now it's hilarious that losing the round of 16 points she had at Wimbledon last year, she holds at 23 in the rankings. Of course, the real rankings, tennis abstracts, ELO ratings. She's currently number six. They've never been realer. ELO rating, seriously. Number six in yearly ELO rating. You look for Elena Rabakina, 13th in overall ELO rating with this victory. It is fascinating to hear you delineate between tier two and tier three because to me, Tier one, again, final four of a Grand Slam. If you're in the main draw, I expect you to get there. I think Iga, outside of Wimbledon, you would put in tier number one, particularly given her success this season. Tier two, you're a lock to get to the second week. You're right. With all the upsets we see uh, on the WTA Tour, particularly early weeks in slams, it is tough to say who are the locks right now. Is a Paula Bedosa, if healthy, a lock? I would say she probably puts her name in Tier 2, at least over the last nine months uh, of success when she hasn't been injured. Jabour's now made the second week in three of the last five slams. I think with her final run here, she probably belongs in that Tier 2 right now as well. Now, hard courts, Osaka jumps immediately to a Tier 1 player probably, but that's a different conversation Sakari at best Tier 2. Like, I think she's going to make the second week of New York. Who knows with Conteve, Halep probably now has to be Tier 2 as well. There's a plethora of young players I'm leaving out here. But, like, I don't know. Am I being too generous with my Tier 2? It's sort of glass half empty, glass half full. If, yes, it's great that they can make the second week, but then what do they do once they make the second week? If if fourth round is their ceiling, that doesn't strike me as a Tier 2 quality No, that's top of Tier 3. You're right. That's fair. Yeah. I mean, Bedosa made the second week and played a phenomenal match against Petra Kvitova and then didn't show up against Halep. And that sort of, in many ways, erased that phenomenal win against Petra. She's one of the players, again, that I'm looking for this summer because it's really, it feels like time is running out for Paola Bedosa to really capitalize on what has been a phenomenal breakthrough pretty much up until Miami, got sick in Miami and, you know, had made this mad dash to get to number two in the rankings. And has not been the same. I mean, it's just, it's, that's brutal. Sakari, you, you know, certainly a player with a ceiling. Jabor, you know, yes, made this final and, and played really great tennis through the week, but did have a quite soft draw to do it. I mean, it got nervous repeatedly against Buskova, against Tatiana Maria in the semifinals. You wonder if she makes the final in with Rabakina's draw. I kind of feel like Halep figures that one out if, if the, the semifinal opponents are switched. So again, yeah, it's, are they tier two or are they top of tier three? And I am quite reticent to place Rabakina anywhere at the moment, least of all on the strength of one really good tournament. You know, I feel like we've been burnt one too many times on that one. So I certainly want to get more data points. The good thing for Rabakina, she's a very solid hardcore player. She made four, four out of five finals you know, to start the uh, the 2020 season. So this is there's no reason why she can't continue the momentum if not for what's going on between the years. This is, be- this is what's between the years, by the, the way. Other one- to the top of my head. Tier one upside, it feels like she has. You can say that about her yes. now, definitively. Yes, absolutely. And with a Grand Slam title. Uh, can we talk players with tier one upside quickly? Because then I want to go sure. to our players to watch this be, summer. Be positive. All right. We're look, I'm going to do this via the Tennis Abstract ELO ratings. Because I think it's fascinating to look at the yearly <laughs> ELO ratings right now. And I'm going to remove Ashley Barty from the equation. Iga Sviantek, tier one. We agree? Yes. See, this is replacing good win, bad loss today. This is good. We have a little section here to rank things. Jabour's number two. I don't think she's tier one. I think no. now the draw, to your point, broke perfectly for her. I think she's the player who epitomizes tier two, where it's just, look, she's going to beat who she needs to beat, and the record indicates as much. And I think that's the takeaway 
if you look from Own Jabour from this Wimbledon, yes, it was shaky, but you look for her overall now in 2022. She's 36 and 10. You know, since the start of the clay court season, her losses are Benchich, Bedosa, Iga, and then one bad day against Magda Lynette in the first round of Roland Garros. She then wins in Berlin, finals before the three-set loss to Rabakina. She's just beating everyone she needs to beat this year. It kind of epitomizes tier two to me. She's the, the poster child right now. That's true. I mean, given get that everybody else is struggling to beat the players they're supposed to beating, yeah. then yes, that's true. All right. I like that. She's tier two. Third right now, if you remove Barty, is Halep. Tier two? Any tier one upside still? <sighs> I think she's tier one upside, but I think okay. she's tier three until, until until further notice. Because again, this is she has played four, three and a half great matches since the clay court season. She be, and two of them were against Palabadosa. Yeah. <laughs> so I, it's really rough to say where her median level is. But as she certainly, when she is playing at her best, she can really clobber a top three player. But you know, can she do that seven times in a row to win a slam? Unclear. Well, this is how we can segue into our list, by the way, of players to watch this season because the number four player is my number one women's player to watch here. And again, that's what we want to do quickly. Unfortunately, I got to let David go here as I got a cool interview coming up in 10 minutes, but we'll get plenty more with DK. Throughout Very the sorry, Brandon Nakashima. Summer. You have been bumped. Oh, that's a, that's a little tease for all of you who's <laughs> coming up later this week. Shout out to you, DK. All right. My most fascinating player. She's fourth. If you remove Ashley Barty in the tennis abstract yearly ELO rating, she's one of two players this season to reach the fourth round of every major that's been played. It's Amanda Nisimova. It just feels like all the signs are there, DK. She's one of eight players right now to rank top 20 in both hold and break percentage. The leap's being made. It's just like, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, because Harmony Tan did a lot of things well on court. But to me, to see some of these players just unable to solve the puzzle that was Harmony Tan and be like, wait a second, everything's on my terms. If I'm patient enough, I should be able to blitz you off this court. And then to see Anisimova be like, I'm going to crush you. Like, you just, you can't hurt me. I am going to kill you. That's the gear that you need for tier one. And I think when you look for Amanda Nisimova, who finally, obviously healthy and went through so many struggles off the court, whether it's the loss of her father or just so many different things, finally seems to be in the right place mentally. She's 29 and 11 this season, David. She's 22 overall in the rankings. You look in the points race, Anisimova right now, 15th. There are four, five Americans in the top 15 of the points race. Goff, Pagula, Collins, Keys, and Isimova. My hot take for you is that Amanda Isimova ends up at the year-end finals. Tier yep, one upside I'm, for sure. I'm going to go with that. And it's funny because it was very hard to not enjoy, but it was hard to really forecast out the Anisimova run at this Wimbledon because of current WTA brain. You see Harmony Tan and you think this is a match that a talented player finds a way to lose. And so it was hard to really get excited in many ways about what Anisimova had already done against Coco Golf and what she could potentially do later in the tournament. But I think talk about winning a match that you're supposed to win. That was a prime example of that. Just a mature, clean performance from Amanda. Shame about how she fell behind a set in five, one to Simona Halep could have very easily been a three set match. Had she gotten into it just a little bit sooner, she certainly got a lot of upside. And, it, and again, talk about, Rabakina having clean, repeatable technique. Anisimova, it's the same for her in many respects. You know, obviously, Goff is a superior athlete, is a superior competitor in many respects, but 
if Amanda is feeling confident and fit, the technique can take care of the rest. So she is one that I would be looking for to make the top eight at the end of the year for sure. Any other tier one upsides that jump out to you? Ostapenko, quick yes, no. I mean, of course she has a tier one upside, but she's like an eclipse yeah, fair. <laughs> once every 80 years. I mean, she got, I mean, she's someone who talk about Anisimova walking off the court, shaking her head, feeling like she should have done better. I mean, Ostapenko, this was her moment to make another Grand Slam final and it did not happen. And she certainly can't say she didn't have enough opportunities. She came off court feeling like she would never lose a match like that again. She certainly lost quite a few of those kinds of matches in the past. So it's hard to say that that's going to not happen ever again. But yeah, she's certainly tier one upside. But, you know, realistically, we haven't seen that since the Middle East swing. And there's no telling when it's going to come back, particularly on hard courts, which have always been a bit of a mixed bag for her. The last player I would say has tier one upside on the women's side and who has to be on my list, and I alluded to her earlier, is Bianca Andreescu. Because I'm just saying it feels like something's happening right now with Andrescu. And you look at the real rankings again, the yearly ELO ratings via our friends at Tennis Abstract. Andrescu, while not at her peak, has worked her way up those yearly ELO ratings, back up to number 36 after a really slow start to the season. And I mean, again, we've played the good win, bad loss with Andrescu before. You look for her now overall in 2022, 12 and 7. The big thing, she was able to play seven events during this European stretch. Seven events over the course of a three, four-month run of play. She just seems healthy. She seems fit. We're back into her portion of the summer where she, you know, again, that Canada-U.S. Open 2019 run, I think unequivocal tier one upside. She's someone to watch for you this summer? I mean, we've seen a little bit of everything now, Herman Jureski. We've seen her be really great. We've seen her be really bad, and we've seen her be absent. And now we've seen her just be kind of okay to good, you know, burgeoning on great, but I don't think we've gotten great yet from Bianca this season. And I would love to see that again, because she's so fun to watch. We talk about an engaging personality on the court. She's someone who has a lot of star quality. So you would definitely look for her to, to get it together ahead of the U S open in the immortal words of uh, Kim Kardashian. She needs to get her up and work (laughs) because it's been a while. I mean, we go back to that 2019 you know, whether it was Barty, Andrescu, Osaka, Kennan, these were your standard bearers on the WTA tour. And it's why we're lacking in this sort of definitive tier one, because the women that we expected to be in the tier one have been absent or otherwise in, in the years since. So I think Andrescu, again, healthy, happy. I certainly expect big things from her and certainly on hard courts is, is a really big opportunity for her to do it. All right. Give me some names on your list. Women's side first. So, I mean, I... <laughs> Palabadosa is obviously one of my sort of do or die moments. I mean, she's someone who, again, had a great start to the season on hard courts, has really struggled to replicate that on clay and grass to a large extent. Back on hard courts, going to have a lot of points to defend in the fall, has, you know, her her Indian Wells points coming off after the U.S. Open, has an opportunity to make up some ground at the Open where she had a shoulder injury and ended up losing early in the second round. This is sort of do or die for Paola because she had a great start to the year and now she's got a really make up for that lost momentum. My others would be, I mean, obviously you got to look at what the U.S. Open finalist, Emma Raducanu, Leila Fernandez, what they're going to do this summer. I mean, this is again, a big moment for them. Leila Fernandez out of Wimbledon with a foot injury was showing some, some signs of life, making the French Open quarterfinal. If she's not injured, doesn't she beat Martina Trevisan? You feel like she would, and even, even half injured or fully injured, she almost did it. And obviously Emma Raducanu, a lot of fits and starts, through the last year since winning the U.S. Open, 
you hope that she's able to really put those missing pieces together and, and pull off a good run. I think there'll be a lot of goodwill behind her in New York. Obviously, people remember what she did, what Layla did. They'll be fan favorites. You imagine they'll be on big courts to start their U.S. Open 2022 campaign. So I think th- those three are the, probably the three that I'm looking at most closely. Yeah, I would throw Rena Sabalenka, the obvious other tier one player who, yes, when she plays course. her best, probably has to be on that list, has some serious points to defend as well with Wimbledon, U.S. Open, res- uh, both coming off her resume from last year. You talk about, again, players who the spotlight is on as we flip quickly to the men's side. Jensen Brooksby, like all the chickens are coming to roost for Brooksby now over the next few months. Newport, City Open, U.S. Open, all of it. Brooksby's got to play defense now. And the free ride is over. You're not just adding points freely to your resume. And yeah, he had to defend challenger points earlier in the year. But now he's got big pockets of ATP points to defend. I also think people have figured him out a little bit. A little bit more patient. Uh, Certainly his game's not blitzing anyone with surprise. He's one for me. Alex Demonauer's the other. Because, like, there are just flashes of brilliance for the Demon. And, you know, I think you play that match against Christian Green ten times. He wins it seven of them in that Wimbledon round of 16. He just has the athleticism I need to watch. And 23 years old now, you know, what is the prime for Alex Diemenauer look like? I know we've talked about this before. I still don't know. Those are the two guys on my men's list. Any thoughts on them? Any guys you'd add? Your two were Diemenauer and who else? And Jensen Brooksby, just because okay. I think he's the story of the summer. Just after being the story of the summer, it's just like, okay, what's the follow-up act? Because it could – he could fall out of the top 100. It's true. I mean, yeah. I mean, we certainly got a big story coming out on Jensen in the next issue of Tennis Magazine. So you hope he doesn't fall out of the top 100 right away. I didn't write it, but it's I, I saw the, uh, the mock-up of it. It looks Fair. quite impressive. I mean, going – looking on the men's side, obviously you, want, you look at Yannick Sinner – Big breakthrough, making the quarterfinals of, the, of Wimbledon, beating Alcaraz and getting having Djokovic on the ropes for two sets. You look at what Casper Ruud might be able to do on hard courts. Even what Christian Garin was able to do at Wimbledon, man. I mean, he got that win over Demon Arm, played a phenomenal match against Nick Kyrgios on his worst surface. He was someone who looked like he was on his way out of the top 100 a few months ago and is suddenly, you know, coming off of a Wimbledon quarterfinal. And he looks like a Disney prince. So I'm, he's certainly going to be someone that I'm paying attention to over the next couple weeks in this wet, hot American summer. That we if I put a in. blonde wig on him, could he have been in the sweet life of Zach and Cody? A blonde wig and like 20 pounds of boy fat. See, he's been giving me Prince Eric. I feel like oh. the, I feel like that. I feel like that casting for the the Little Mermaid uh, Redux uh, came a little too soon. I feel like we could have gotten him in. Maybe he we also, could have dubbed him in. Since we're doing this, if you were to make a Lego character into a real human, it would kind of be Alex Demonauer, right? Like with the head shape. Like I feel like you know how you could pop off the Lego person's head. Like I feel like you could do that with Demonauer and then pop it back into place and like screw it in. I mean, to me, I mean, for me, I always go back to that that viral video, but it was viral for me. <laughs> yeah, of okay, him okay, with the yeah, animal yeah, hat. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so I th- I think of those like um, the panda hat or whatever jingle jangle guys where you yeah. pull the string and they get all the arms and legs go. Bloop. So yeah, it's this is, that that was great for a, an audible medium for me to describe something that's almost completely indescribable. But you know, like one of those old funky like marionette toys where you pull the middle yeah. of the string and the legs yeah. and arms pop out. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. My refer- my references is always remain hip and happening and, and very fresh. It's good. It's good. Now, uh, all of that said, again, uh, Demon Brooksby, good for me. Any guys you want to add? Yeah, and obviously we got to talk about the world number one. 
Yeah, Daniel Medvedev, who for whom hard courts, I, I think I said it earlier, Daniel Medvedev is to hard courts as Mariah Carey is to Christmas. I mean, he's someone who's just been so unbeatable on the surface and he's fresh, he's ready. He's taken this Wimbledon ban and as graciously as one could, certainly no complaints, you know, made had a little vacation and who knows how he would have performed at Wimbledon. It certainly hasn't been a phenomenally great tournament for him in the past. So don't know if he would have made a tremendous impact, but at the same time, now he's going to be heading onto his favorite surface. He's defending US Open points, you know, send defending a lot of points, obviously heading into the next couple of months. So this is a big moment for him and he won't have to really deal with his chief rival to do it in Novak Djokovic. So we'll see how that impacts the, uh, the field. It really seems like these top guys are taking turns showing up at these slams lately, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, seriously, there's not, this town ain't big enough for all of them. No, I mean, a stark look, you look at the live rankings right now, Medvedev won zero of two, Nadal three, Tsitsipas four, Rude five, Alcaraz six, Djokovic seven, Rublev eight, FAA 9, Sinner 10. It's the first time we've had two guys, uh, three guys all born in the 2000s inside the ATP Top 10. So changes are a-coming on the ATP and WTA Tours. And I apologize. We definitely went a little short on those players to watch. I reserve the right to bring not only David back, but to re-examine that topic over the course of the next week as we again try to set the scene for the summer. Look at everything that's yet to unfold. But with that said, DK, you gave us a little tease of one profile coming up in Tennis Magazine. What's coming up at baseline? What can we expect from you over the next couple of weeks other than a couple of good nights of rest? I mean, first of all, in the magazine, we've got a cover story on a certain U.S. Open finalist that yours truly wrote. She is from Canada. Hint, hint. Uh, so that you can look forward to that. And the next issue of Tennis Magazine. And, and as for baseline, we're going to be sort of churning out uh, some retrospective content, some technical content. We're going to look into Elena Rabakina's serve. We're going to go back to the 2019 U.S. Uh, we're going to go back to the 2019 Wimbledon final and just sort of recap what has happened in the last couple of years, the way Djokovic has been able to win key points, the way he did against Kyrgios, the way he was able to win key points against Federer, down two match points, and just give you a good old-fashioned flashback as there isn't too much happening this week, but we're, we're, we're burgeoning upon the three-year anniversary of what I guess you could imagine is sort of the turning point of the big this current big three arc. I mean, had Federer won, won that match, he would have been at 21, and he's still at 20. <laughs> <laughs> It's fair. It's exciting. We're looking forward to reading it, and we look forward to having you on this show throughout the course of the summer again at DKTWNS to follow everything on Twitter. Of course, speaking of which, if you need any more updates on everything happening in the tennis world, at Cracked Rackets on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, of course, at AL Gruskin. If you'd like to reach out to me directly, a shout-out as always to Super Producer Daniel Westoff for the of an energy job he does day in, day out, making all of this content possible. Shout-out as well to our friends at Tennis Point. Remember, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all that said, for our fantastic co-host, David Kane, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. DK, what do we tell our listeners? And that's the break. And we will see you all tomorrow. Thank you, as always, my friend. Das Vidanya. Yeah.